Jesus' uh, ministry and his mission statement, and it's fueled by what he knew about humanity and what he also knew about loving God. And I want to show you the comp comprehensive nature of his life of justice because it's actually fourfold. It's shown in his life and deeds by including the excluded, by challenging cultural practices, by confronting the powerful and advocating for the, press, the oppressed. But first I want to ask you to think about what comes to your mind when you think about social justice and particularly advocates and activists in the social justice space. You might like to think about famous people in history, um, such as perhaps the women's suffragettes. Alice Paul may or may not be a name that you know, but she was instrumental in achieving the right for women to vote in the US. Nelson Mandela, of course, the anti-apartheid activist in prison for 27 years, fighting for equal social rights for black citizens. Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, who opposed British rule in India. Helen Keller, we might not think of her as an activist, but she was a blind and deaf woman who was uh, uh, active in promoting disability rights uh, for people. Rosa Parks, who famously refused to stand up on a bus and give up her seat. Uh, we might think about contemporary examples of activists as well, such as Greta Thunberg, or some of the men in Afghanistan currently who are standing up for the right for women to be, to be educated. Uh, climate activists of different types defacing famous paintings in museums. And we might think closer to home, uh, like our own Tim Costello, who's been a long-time gambling reform advocate, campaigning to alleviate global poverty and calling for Australia to have a more compassionate stance and response to refugees. So just think for a second about the kind of image that comes up to your mind, what they do, how they present, what kind of things they say, what kind of actions they uh, participate in. So if you're like me, you'll probably realise that there's actually a uh, a real spectrum of approaches, isn't there? There's uh, from the very polemical and strident kind of speeches to very um, inspiring speeches. There is um, actions that might be polarising and physical to more peaceful demonstrations and non-violent resistance. But here's what they all have in common. All of these social justice activists are disruptors to the status quo. All social justice acti acti activists are disruptors to the status quo. They're trying to put a javelin in the cogs of the machinery of how the world turns. They're saying, I don't accept that. Something has to change. And, ship and scripture gives us a really sharp image of Jesus as a disruptor to the status quo. And I'm going to ask Bron now to read our passage before us, and I'm sure that you will um, know this passage. And it comes from, the reference was, um, so can we go back a slide, is the reference there? No. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Matthew chapter... Matthew 21, 12 to 17. And Bron's going to read it. Bron, would you like to grab the mic just so we can hear you? Yeah, and it'll be up on the screen. Yeah. 
Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 12 to where? 17. Right. The, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. So here we have a very strong image of Jesus doing something utterly disruptive in the temple. And in John's Gospel, we have another detail which is, is, is very strong. Again, Jesus actually weaves cords into a whip, not to strike people but to chase out the animals out of the place because he's wanting to dismantle the abuse that was going on, the extortion that was happening right in the temple that was prohibiting the poorest of the poor from being able to worship God because uh, exorbitant prices were being demanded for the small um, birds that the poor people could present as, a, as an offering to God for worship. But I want to tell you that this, this action, this scene, is actually just the crescendo because the disruption actually starts way back. It actually starts with the incarnation. The incarnation is what we call the event of the second person of the Trinity, God, the Son, taking on human flesh. And this is the biggest disruptive event in human history. Because in Jesus, God is acting to disrupt the status quo of the human condition. And the human condition is alienation from God, which results in breakdown across all the relationships with ourselves, with others, and with the natural created world. So Jesus comes fully human and fully divine to show us what true humanity is and to restore us to that full humanity, restoring us in the four relationships. Now this disruption goes under the radar for a long time. When he's born, there's a bit of, you know, kerfuffle that goes on, but we don't hear much about Jesus for a long time until his mission begins. And he articulates his mission in his inaugural speech in his hometown synagogue in Luke 4 as follows. And I'm just going to read it to you. He quotes Isaiah 4. When, the, when he came to Nazareth, been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today 
this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the essence of Jesus' ministry and his mission is to reverse the situation of humanity. And that reversal has a double focus. To restore humanity of, of people who are spiritually poor, but also people who are physically poor and socially poor. And this double vision of his mission arises because of what he knew from the scriptures. He knew the following things. Firstly, he knew that people are embodied spiritual beings. Now, people are not spirits poured into a container. We are embodied spiritual beings. C.S. Lewis talks about the fact that the least natural thing in the world is actually a dead body. That's actually the unnatural state of the human condition. We think it's normal. It is normal. It's universal. But it's not natural. It is the unnatural condition of the human being. And that's why the resurrection is such great news because it's a restoration of people to become reintegrated, spirit and body connecting again. A new body for sure, but an embodied spiritual being once more. So Jesus knew that people are embodied spiritual beings, so what happens in the body is really important. It's not just a matter of treating their spirits. And what Jesus also knew was that loving God and loving people are really two sides of the same coin, and you can't divide them. And the fulcrum, or the essential thing in the social just justice tradition, is this understanding that he shares in Matthew 22. Actually, it comes through the mouth of Pharisees who are testing him about what they must do to inherit eternal life. And the answer which they give, which is correct, are, is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, I beg your pardon, that's Jesus' words in answer to the Pharisees. Um, and elsewhere, he, he actually gets this same answer from the rich young ruler who wants to know how he can have, have eternal life. Now, these might seem like two separate commands, but they're really inseparable because white-hot love of God compels compassionate love of neighbour. Why are they two sides of the same coin? Here's what else Jesus knew. Jesus knew that people are image bearers of the living God. You see, in the Jewish religion, images of God were prohibited in worship. The second of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or anything in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. Why? It's because people already have icons all around them, image bearers. People are the image bearers of God. People walking around us are the icons that are supposed to point us to the reality of the living God. And that has huge implications for how we treat one another. Because God takes very much to heart how his image bearers are treated. Each person is an outcrop, if you like, of divine imagination. Unique masterpieces, if you like. Now they may be tired, and they might even be in states of depravity that we might wonder, is the image still there? 
But God is jealous for each one of them to be restored to whole person shalom and wellness. Now just think for a minute of, of what kind of uh, price a sketch, a throwaway sketch, sketch by a maestro, an artist, a famous artist gets at the auction houses. Something so quickly done and hastily done. But it's of value because of who penned it. And every single person, no matter how we might regard them, is a masterpiece to be cherished. And that's why loving God and loving others is indivisible. Now, in the, across the spiritual streams, we're going to see a little bit how these streams actually touch on one another. And Jesus, we're going to learn as well, was a great student of the scriptures. And again, he would have known very much, he would have been very familiar with the fact that the, the prophets frequently denounced uh, the religious who uh, attempted to bifurcate or separate love for God and love for people. And the most striking example of this is Amos. And his single trumpet call was justice, justice, justice. He denounced the selling of poor into slavery, perverting justice of the oppressed, engaging in all sorts of abusive sexual practices, and taking financial advantage of the helpless. And he takes sharp aim at the worshipping life, at the liturgical life of the people of Israel. In Amos 5 he says, speaking on behalf of God, I despise your festivals. I will not accept your offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So Jesus knows that people are embodied spiritual beings, poor spiritually, but also poor socially and in body and physically and in relationships. He knows that loving God means loving people, two sides of the same coin. And he knows that all people bear God's image and are precious to him. Each is a unique expression of God's creativity and his own personhood. Let me turn our attention now to the comprehensive way that Jesus disrupted things for the sake of justice, shown in his life and deeds, the way he included the excluded, challenged cultural practices, confronted the powerful and advocated for the pressed. And I'm indebted actually to the International Social Justice Commission of the Salvation Army for these points. Uh, as we would expect, the Salvos have a lot to, of great material on this because their own tradition as a denomination has been so grounded in social justice and is to this day. First of all, Jesus included the excluded. He showed compassion to social outsiders. Think about all those stories of the way he healed lepers. It happened numerous times through the gospel, but he didn't just heal them from afar, he also touched them, identifying the needs, their need as a whole person, the emotional and social uh, pain that was there. He protested gender inequality. He allowed women to follow him as disciples and learn from him. Think about, think about Mary and Martha. Mary sat at Jesus' feet, learning from him. 
And he also insisted that the woman who came to him for healing and just uh, demonstrated such faith by touching the hem of his garment when Jesus wasn't looking and is healed because of her faith in the one who can heal her, he insists that she comes forward so that he could commend her faith, but also, I think, so that he could see her because it's the loving gaze of God on us that actually heals us. He wanted to show her that he had seen her, that he mattered. First witness to the resurrection, we know, uh, is a woman. It's Mary Magdalene, and she's sent to tell the other disciples. And women, that was a really big deal, and I'm sure you've heard this before, but women were considered to be unreliable witnesses in those days. So the fact that Jesus entrusted his first appearance to a woman is so radical. And he embraced the excluded. He rebuked disciples for obstructing children from coming to him. And he also pronounced judgment on any who would harm children. So he included the excluded in all these ways. Secondly, he challenged cultural practices. He rejected racism. He conversed with a Samaritan woman uh, alone, which was a really big deal on the gender level as well, but he crossed that divide to speak to a Samaritan woman. His, his disciples were really astonished to find him even in conversation with her, and she herself expresses that astonishment. He dignified second-class citizens. He does this in the story of the Good Samaritan. He makes the person who is the hated, discriminated, distrusted group of the Jews the hero of the story. And he risked his reputation by drinking with drunkards and prostitutes. He also, so he, yeah, so he challenged the cultural practices in these ways. And thirdly, he confronted the powerful. He challenged unjust behaviour of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who was transformed through that encounter. But notice again, uh, he extends fellowship and shares in hospitality with Zacchaeus. Beautiful story. But he's still challenging that injustice and he wants Zacchaeus to change. He confronted the spiritual arrogance of the Pharisees. He warned people not to do what they do, to do what they say but not to do what they do because they actually neglect the weightier matters of the law. And he had denounced their spiritual abuse. The Pharisees were guilty of predatory behaviour to vulnerable widows. And Jesus says they devour widows' houses. And what he's talking about, he was talking about the way the Pharisees would ingratiate themselves to these vulnerable women in, a, in an effort to leverage out of them the small uh, finances that they had left them. So it was a, a spiritual ab abuse that Jesus denounced. He also reordered political power. He said to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but to give to God what is God's. And he redefined greatness in the kingdom as being sacrificial servant leadership when his disciples asked him about who would get to sit next to him in his kingdom. So that's Jesus confronting the powerful. 
But perhaps what we mostly think about when we think about Jesus and social justice is the way he advocated for the oppressed. He advocated for the poor and he said that how we treat the hungry and the sick and the imprisoned, he reckons that as how we treat him. There's a one-to-one correlation in Jesus' estimation. He also, though, interestingly, advocated for the privileged. So Nicodemus and the rich ruler, he tried to help them see how their wealth and their religious power might be blinding them to their need to find fullness of life in him by ordering their loves and their life around him as central. And of course, he released the oppressed. He healed the sick, he raised the dead, and he released people from demonic oppression. So we see just how thoroughgoing the nature of Jesus' life, dedicated to social justice and shalom for whole person well-being is, including the excluded, challenging cultural practices, confronting the powerful, advocating for the oppressed. I want to give you now an example, one of the most powerful examples, I think, of social justice from within more recent history in the Christian church. And I'm also going to share a few strengths and perils, and I'm going to give you an invitation, a couple of invitations to consider. Some of you may or may not know the name John Woolman. Do you know, has anyone heard of that name? He was, um, he's considered by some as being um, one of the most important figures in the abolition of slavery. So he lived in the 1700s in, the, in America and his book, The Journal of John Woolman, is considered to, by some as being the second most powerful book they've read next to the Bible second most influential book. Now he became the figurehead of a groundswell of anti-slavery conviction and it was a conviction that would eventually conquer slavery first in his own denomination as a Quaker, so he was a Quaker Christian and ultimately it spread throughout the Western world, had a ripple effect. And interestingly he himself was quite um, immersed in the charismatic So he was deeply intuitive to the movements of the spirit. Early in his working life, he was asked to write a bill of sale on behalf of his employer for his employer's slave. He was very young at this time, but he was struck to the heart by the inherent inconsistency of writing a bill of slavery for one of his fellow creatures. And he told his employer with great trembling as a young person, probably in his first job, that he felt that slave keeping was simply inconsistent with Christian religion. And this was just the beginning of what was to come. It's like a a rock being loosened before the avalanche comes down. He went on to become an itinerant preacher and he went to the south and he saw slavery firsthand. And so his ministry came to include work trying to abolish slavery. Now he was a, quite a tough-minded man in many ways, but he was also gent, very gentle-spirited. 
And he had this amazing ability to um, foster good relationships with those who opposed him, the slaveholders. And the slaveholders actually really liked him a lot. And they would actually ask him to come for dinner, come and be their guest. Often when he entered a slaveholder property, he would inquire of the people there working there. And if he found out that they were slaves, he insisted on paying them directly for their services. Can you imagine how disruptive that is to the slave owners? So he started small. He's taking control of the small revolution that he has control over while he works on the larger institutional problem of slavery. It's going to take a long time. Eventually, he convinced the General Quaker Assembly to release slaves. It wasn't easy. It was a long work that took time. And it included a deeply prophetic moment in one of the meetings because there was so much uh, talk about having to, trying to come up with some sort of compromise. Uh, and John sat there with his head bowed, his face brimming with tears, hearing the discussions. And finally he stood up and he gave a strong prophetic word, urging for complete abolition, a warning that we couldn't presume on God's grace if we treat fellow humans in this way. It was a powerful moment. The effect was profound and the vote was unanimous. And the Quakers were quite amazing because they were only the only body who released their slaveholders the only body that asked their slaveholders in their midst to reimburse slaves for their time in bondage. In other words, all Quakers who released slaves, not only were they to release the slaves, but they were urged to pay these slaves for years of servitude. Many of them went bankrupt. But the Quakers believed that justice demanded this act to this extent. So John Woolman was a prophet for his day, insisting that love of God demanded love of neighbour and that the neighbour is not just my cultural equivalent. The neighbour is any person, anywhere. Now, just a brief word on a modern-day example. You may or may not know the name Shane Claiborne. Does anyone know that name? He's a Christian... Uh, American Christian activist and he um, he's known for his embrace of a very simple lifestyle uh, to be able to release funds for other things but he uh, strongly advocates against the death penalty and the way uh, it is overrepresented uh, in the United States of poor coloured people who are unable to get uh, good legal representation. So that's part of his work. He also advocates against gun violence in the US and he's started a project in the last couple of years offering to buy guns back from people, a bit like John Howard, but not the government, but gu buying guns from people who want to turn away from gun ownership. And he's turning them into physical plowshares, so gardening tools. So it's a reference to Isaiah 4, that when God comes to judge, people will beat their swords, their instruments of war, and their weapons of violence into plowshares, which is an, agricult it's an agricultural tool, a bit like a spade. So John Woolman, 
voice from the past, 1700s, Shane Claiborne, living example today. Let me give you a brief word now on the strengths and perils of the social justice tradition. The strengths of this tradition are that it helps us to answer our call to be part of the right ordering of society, right living, right relationships, and to signpost the coming kingdom, working for it now, because there will be a social order that is perfect and peaceful. So we signpost that now in what we do here on earth. Secondly, it helps us live out our identity as a church where no one is separated by nationality, social class, race or gender. Galatians 4 says, there are no longer Jews, Greek, slave, free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And it also helps us bridge the gap between what we profess, our theological ethics, and what we actually practice. Because it's so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to separate a faithful reading of the scripture and the mandate to resist public policies that are unjust. And so this helps us stop being theoretical ethicists but actual nominalists when it comes to social justice. And it gives bite and relevance to the language of Christian love. It gives us a foundation as well for ecological concerns and stewardship of the environment. And it strengthens our Christian witness as we hold out what is an impossible ideal now we signpost a new heaven and a new earth that is to come. Now, some of the perils. One of the perils that can easily happen in the social justice tradition is that this can become an end in itself. The immediate real life needs of people can make the spiritual reality of people's alienation from God less pressing, less urgent. The real life needs become more pressing, the spiritual just goes to the back burner and we just don't get around to addressing the fact that the primary relationship that needs restoration, the primary wholeness, is actually to be restored to God. It's the foundation for wholeness for all the other relationships. This tradition or stream, if we're not careful, can lead to legalism. It's easy if we're engaging in practices and advocating and involved and making sacrifices to judge others who are maybe less engaged than we are, less committed to justice in these practical ways as we look at their lives and make assessments. And in this sense, actually, uh, social justice shares the tendency with the holiness stream, uh, if we're not careful, to become rigid and judgmental. Another peril is that we can easily become too closely aligned to a particular political agenda or cause where our first and foremost allegiance is with King Jesus. So we have to be careful of making too cosy a relationship with any political entity because it's going to blunt our prophetic edge and I think we can all think of examples in our world today where that's happening. So... Just to conclude, I'm going to share two practices now uh, that you can enter into, starting small, but trying to lean into this stream 
But first let me tell you a story, or just tell you about a children's book that I loved. You might know this book. It's a book called Flat Stanley. Has anyone read Flat Stanley? It's such a fun book. So Flat Stanley is um, the story of Stanley Lambchop, a young boy who's uh, flattened accidentally by a notice board, and he becomes completely flat. Right? And so that means he's actually able to do lots of fun things. He can slide under doors. He can, uh, his parents post him to his grandparents for a holiday. They don't need to send him on a flight. They can just fold him up and send him in an envelope. And his brother also makes him into a kite and he's able to fly and get up high and see the sights. Now, it's a great book. It's, an, it's a fun book. And this is not really the intention of the author. But in a way... Flat Stanley shows the extent to how when a person is flattened, when they're less than three-dimensional in our minds, they can become commodified. People who are flattened by us can become commodified. Because you see, his parents are saving money by sending him wrapped up in the envelope. Probably not so pleasant for him. And the kite expedition, that is a disaster because he ends up getting stuck in a tree for ages. And in fact, he gets really sick of being flat. And his brother pumps air into him with the bicycle pump. So he regains his shape. And I want to suggest tonight that one of the practices that we need to do, that we can lean into, is to unflatten Stanley. And Mark, I might get you to pass around the unflattened Stanley little card. What do I mean by unflattened Stanley? I want to suggest, there was, there, actually there was an ad, a 7-Eleven ad ages ago, that when, when McDonald's started making frozen drinks and all the other KFC started making frozen drinks available, 7-Eleven came up with this ad and it said, it was, it was, they were really kind of riffing on the fact that, um, you know, McDonald's, you, uh, you have to get somebody else to make your drink for you, but at 7-Eleven, you get to do it yourself. And the, the tagline for the ad was, served by you, not by some random. Served by yourself, not by some random. So in other words, it's saying that those kids, those pimply teenagers in their Macca's uniforms, you know, they're just randoms. No, 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 you're too good for that. You need to serve it yourself. And I remember really objecting to this because... Nobody's a random, right? Nobody should be called a rando. I mean, I know it's just an ad, but I remember really being struck by it. And you see, I think we can flatten people, um, particularly those who maybe aren't like us. It's why Jesus deliberately chose the Samaritan. A flattened, rejected figure of suspicion to the Israelites seen not really as a real human, not worthy. So we all have flat Stanleys in our world, the people that we, just to get along in life, we can't be turning our attention constantly to people and appreciating the beauty of their fullness, but we do flatten people, right? But there's a really sinister way in our world that we flatten people. Modern day slavery doesn't just flatten people, it turns people on their side because these people working the multi-million dollar corporations, they're not just flat to us, they're invisible. 
And we can't presume, just because we're not directly involved, that God doesn't call us to be part of the solution to provide justice and equity. He hears the cry of the poor and dispossessed. So first of all, what I'm, I want to invite you to do, and this is an exercise I have done, and it's actually really fun. What you do is you choose a day when you are going to be out in the community, when you're likely to see people out in the street or in the shopping centre. And you just, all you do is you just mentally tune in to the people walking past you, to the people serving you, and you just notice them, right? Just notice, try to kind of think what age bracket they might be in, have a bit of a guess in your mind about what name they might even have, who their family might be, if they look like they might come from a different culture, you might imagine... I wonder when they came here or have they, were they born here? A second generation, you know, Italians or whoever they are. And uh, if you're especially keen to go a little bit further, I, I invite you even to, and you might do this already, but speak to the people serving you. Speak to the checkout person, right? I find that when I speak to people at the checkout, they come to life, you know, they just really come to life because someone is engaging with them, and I've gotten over time to hear sort of bits and pieces of people's stories and, you know, adding little bits of information about the course they're studying and they recognise me and they light up and I light up and it's beautiful. Um, and I think it's just a way, I mean, it's not really doing anything majorly for anybody out there, but it's a way of tuning my heart, dialing up my sensitivity so that I don't flatten people because it's so easy to do. So unflattened Stanley, that's the first invitation. <coughs> the second invitation is to shop disruptively. I want you to consider disrupting your own shopping trolley. Now, it might seem daunting when we think about modern day slavery and it's going to take a lifetime to lean into that injustice and to make a difference it's going to take hard work by different individuals. But I want to encourage us, like John Woolman, to do something small that is within our control, something we can start with today, something small and achievable. And that is, when you're shopping, you'll notice the shopping trolley cart's got some labels A and B. Let's face it, times are a bit tough. People are conscious about their budget, right? Shopping ethically does cost more, and I'm really conscious of that. But what if, one by one, you thought about some item that you buy regularly and you checked out the ethical credentials of this product and switched out the brand? Choice website has a lot of information, but one of the best websites is, go, is to go to ethical.org.au. What you can do is you can go in there and you can just look up the top, you can type in toothpaste, and it'll give you a bunch of brands and it labels them according to, they rate them A to F. A is top notch, B is also very good. I think the distinction between A and B is A is that they, they've got positive things and no negatives. B is sort of um, nothing particularly positive but no negatives and then F obviously is ter terrible. Let's try to stay away from F if we can. But you know, what if, what if we started small to just change out a few things in our shopping trolley. Because I think the invisibility of people in the world whose um, 
affects our affluent lifestyle depends on. We can't presume that the Lord uh, just cares not whether we are broken by this. Let's try to be, be a little bit broken and try to take some small steps that we can do. And of course there's other things that we could do. This is just a small little invitation. Dallas Willard, who I love, big writer on spiritual formation, says, don't be a hero, start small. And you can always keep adding. Thirdly, I've got a booklet for you. This booklet has a bit of information that I've shared with you about the streams and there are four passages of scripture showing Jesus acting out the social justice tradition. And you might like to take these passages away and meditate on them 